Hello, OnScript friends. This is Matt Lynch, a co-host of the OnScript podcast with Matt Bates and Drew Johnson. I'll be hosting this episode with J. Richard Middleton, and we recorded this in a coffee shop in Cheltenham, where I live in the UK. It's called Boston Tea Party. So there we were, two Americans drinking coffee in England in the Boston Tea Party. Thanks to that fantastic coffee shop for letting us record, and apologies to you for some of the background noise. Uh, I want to welcome back our regular listeners and welcome new listeners. This is a podcast that explores the leading edge of biblical studies and the people behind the books. We're on the nerdy end of the podcast spectrum, but aim to make the inner workings of biblical studies accessible. I want to do an experiment uh, for with you listeners and see what happens. We would like to ask you, the listeners, to send in a 30 to 45 second soundbite sharing something from a biblical studies book that you're reading that you consider paradigm shifting for you personally. Don't worry about uh, whether this is a major book in the field, but maybe it had an impact on you. We'd uh, like you to email your brief recording to onscriptpodcast at gmail.com for possible inclusion in a future episode. Uh, The main requirement is that it's a book in the biblical studies domain and you can email that to the onscript, uh, sorry, just onscriptpodcast at gmail.com. Also, we hear that giving a review on iTunes help helps more people hear about us, so I'd love uh, to see that happen. If this podcast has benefited you in some way, please consider making a $2 a month donation or maybe even a $5 a month donation. Thanks so much to those of you who have contributed to what we're doing. It's been really helpful in enabling us to keep this going. So, without further ado, J. Richard Middleton, here we are. Hello? Okay, we're on. Okay, I'm here at the Boston Tea Party with J. Richard Middleton, who is Professor of Biblical Worldview and Exegesis at Northeastern Seminary in New York. He's the author of The Liberating Image, and he's the co-author of Truth is Stranger Than It Used to Be and The Transforming Vision, and is the author most recently of A New Heaven and a New Earth, Reclaiming Biblical Eschatology. Richard, welcome to OnScript. Good to be here. Wondering if you could help our listeners by starting out and talking a little bit about uh, your background and some of the experiences um, that have shaped you into who you are as a scholar now. So I'm born in Kingston, Jamaica and raised there and did my undergraduate theology at Jamaica Theological Seminary and then immigrated with my family to Canada and did an MA in philosophy at University of Guelph. Um, they started a PhD that crashed and burned and then came back and did another one. Oh, really? Uh, yes, that's a little later, so I've had that experience. And that crashing and burning was one of my key formative experiences because it's through losing a sense of my vocational direction in that mm. process mm. in a new place that I didn't know anybody. So I was disconnected from community um, that I, I began to um, doubt the goodness of God and discovered the lament psalms mm. which have been a, a, a source of renewal and healing for me and so um, intercessory prayer and supplication have become an important part of my life yeah. grappling with God struggling with God and that affects how I read scripture now yeah and you also uh, teach at the uh, Caribbean Graduate School of Theology uh, could you talk about your connection there and yeah and so uh, the Jamaica Theological Seminary was the first um, 
undergraduate institution in Jamaica to offer a bachelor's degree back in the 60s. Um, in the 80s, a graduate school for the whole Caribbean was founded on the same campus, institutionally separate, and I have connections to both. Um, the president of the Theological Seminary was my co-student when I was an undergrad, mm. and the president, the retiring president of the Caribbean Graduate School of Theology is a good friend who also immigrated to Canada, and we got to know each other. And he lived in the UK for a while. Mm. He was um, a secretary for the IFES for a long time, and then went back to take up that. So I have connections with these people. And on a sabbatical um, in 2009, I started teaching there as a three-week module courses, and I've done a few of those in Old Testament theology, and I'm an advisor for the curriculum revision in the theological areas that they do. So I've had long-standing connections, family still in Jamaica, we go back once or twice a year, so I always connect with those folks. So your research has, has uh, focused in the area of worldview and biblical theology, and when you teach and think about theology in Jamaica, how what kind of shifts do you have to make in terms of what you teach? Or is it pretty much the kind of thing you teach in uh, in New York? Really, the only shift is that the moment I start teaching there, I change my accent so they can understand me. Otherwise, there's no real changes. Um, the difference between when I was a student is that theology and the church in Jamaica were very otherworldly, really otherworldly. You shouldn't have anything to do with politics, business, that is worldly stuff. You escape from that. The reason I went into theology was I was an artist, and my church said, Art is not a spiritual profession. You love Christ, so you should become a theologian or a, a, a minister. Um, the difference now is that there isn't a lot of otherworldly stuff in Jamaica anymore. It's pure prosperity gospel. So it's a really serious problem, problems in that area. Yeah. And, and is that part of uh, prosperity gospel that's also dominant now in South America? Yeah. I mean, yeah, is, I mean is that like a kind of global? I think. A, I think a southern so. Trend? Yeah, I mean, they got it from the Americans, basically. It's a wannabe American consumerist mentality. One of our best exports. Ex exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, so, so, so they had a kind of otherworldly theology. Where does that come from? Was that also an American export initially from I, missionaries? Or yeah, I like think that? it was. And there's a lot of uh, analysis of how Caribbean theology developed by theologians in the Caribbean. Mm. And they, they basically claim this is the missionary ideology to keep people passive so they don't engage their circumstances. and be, So you look for heaven hereafter while you can still be a slave today. Yeah. So do you think um, seeing that has shaped your impulse toward um, uh, a kind of biblical theology that's grounded in creation? Yeah, so growing up in that, that situation of otherworldliness, I started to realize it didn't make sense of experiential life. After all, Jamaica's gorgeous beaches and, and nice mountains. But I didn't engage the natural world very much at the time when I was a teenager because of this otherworldly idea. And I began to read certain writers, um, among them George Eldon Ladd from Fuller Seminary, mm -hmm. who claimed the direction of salvation is from heaven to earth and never from earth to heaven. And uh, Francis Schaeffer, who wanted the transformation of culture, and others too, and began to um, have a dawning awareness that I needed to go beyond what I learned in church. And in fact, when the undergraduate seminary, I was at a lot of students who were going through the same thing. So at the age of 20, on a hiking trip to Blue Mountain Peak, almost 7,500 feet high, a good friend of mine who became my best man at my wedding, now teaches at Howard University, said, it's such a shame that all of this will be destroyed when Christ comes back. And I remember thinking, I don't think it's going to be destroyed. I think God wants to be a new creation. I was 20. That was the beginning of my theological shaping, I think. Wow. So you, uh, we've already touched on some of this, but um, I'd, I'd like 
it'd be interesting for you to reflect on some of the dominant theological themes that weave their way through all of your work. Mm -hmm. So we've picked up on creation, and maybe you could unpack that one a little bit, or some mm -hmm. of the other themes. Right. So I think that as a young adolescent, I was a very introverted, shy child. Introversion and shyness are not the same, but I was both. Mm -hmm. And my, my, I couldn't make sense of the chaotic world around me, and I now look back and see that one of my primary developmental tasks was to make sense of the world. And this led me to try and understand a framework for all of life. So creation theology was very helpful, but also philosophy was helpful because it's, you develop an architectonic scheme for how do all aspects of reality relate together. So I've been very interested in the coherence of scripture, the coherence of life, precisely because as a, as a young adult, it was difficult for me to see that. So I've emphasized that while wanting to keep the details also in view. And that's why my title at my current job is Professor of Biblical Worldview, that's the framework, yeah. and exegesis, that's the details. Yeah. That, sounds like a, that sounds like a position that you created. Well, the, the, <laughs> they said, that's what we wanted you to teach. What yeah. shall we call the position? I said, yeah. we can call it that if you want. Okay. And they said, sure. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, so you have, um, so you've, you've got a background in philosophy and also in biblical theology, which those two aren't always... You know, a lot of biblical scholars like myself, you know, we don't, I don't, I don't come up through the philosophy mm -hmm. um, discipline. How, how has that given you uh, a perspective on biblical studies yeah. that you might not otherwise have? So part of that has to do with why I wanted to study philosophy. Um, studying theology, I realized that I wanted a holistic, uh, coherent worldview to, to read scripture with and to live my Christian life with. And... The deficiencies I saw in my education were that I needed to understand Western philosophy because philosophical ideas have shaped theological ideas, and many of them are pagan philosophical ideas, particularly Platonism and Neoplatonism. So I wanted to understand that, and then I wanted to understand the Old Testament roots of the New Testament because I felt what I was learning about the New Testament was unrooted in the Old. So I decided I would study philosophy first because I didn't know enough about it. Then I would go to Old Testament. And so what philosophy does for me, two things, I have a sense of the historical development of ideas, how ideas have shifted, um, how different cultures over time, especially in the West, have shifted, but my cross-cultural experience now plays into that. And so I also see how when I read, say, biblical scholars who are naive about philosophical concepts, I see how they're using philosophical ideas without knowing they are, often badly. Yeah, what's an example of that? Well, the, the, the basic example that first comes to mind is the way... And, and could you name names? No, just uh, no, <laughs> no, some of them are friends. You know. <laughs> no. So I think that the, 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 the traditional historical critical approach that assumes you must um, efface your subjectivity and suppress your ecclesial connections to see a quote-unquote objective reality, um, that's basically the approach of you know, Descartes. You know, I want to find absolute scientific knowledge, so I ground it in human autonomy. And so what's happened over the years is most philosophers and theologians and biblical scholars now realize that there is no such thing as pure objectivity. We are subjects. We bring who we are as persons, our identity, our ecclesial formation, everything to the text. But... Richard Bernstein, a philosopher, in a book called Beyond Objectivism and Relativism, has pointed out that many philosophers today have what he calls Cartesian anxiety. Mm. They know they can't get that kind of certainty, 
but they, they feel bad about it. They feel guilty about it. Mm. And I think mm. some theologians and Bible scholars also, they think they should be able to get there. So, but I think you just, the answer to that is get over it, move on. <laughs> We're all subjective. Yeah. And that's not a critique or a po- positive statement. That's just reality. So let's now interact with the text, with who we are, mm. without absolutizing our standpoint. Yeah. That's subjectivism. Right. So I'm aware we are of this kind of problem. Yeah. And, and, and maybe another part of that, too, is, is seeing that subjectivity not as an unfortunate, lamentable, right. but, but unchangeable situation, but actually uh, an advantage and something that gives you perspective. Well, yeah, if you don't have subjectivity, you have no perspective, so you can't see anything. Yeah. <laughs> Which you is have to stand somewhere. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what would you say then to someone who's, who's got uh, rel- relativism anxiety um, on the other end, who, who feels like, well, it's only the play, you know, it's only... Well, perspective and we can't actually say anything but that's actually what he means yeah. by Cartesian anxiety it's the people who have relativism anxiety oh, okay that's, that's, the, that's the bounce that's the bounce they do you see uh-huh. so but but the point is look um, you only are worried about relativism if you think you should have absolute certainty but you don't right otherwise you're not worried about it okay. that's just life okay yeah, yeah so we can all relax <laughs> we can all relax all right. okay so um I'd like you to uh, talk uh, first about the Imago Dei, because that's theme of your book, The Liberating Image, which everyone should, um, by the way, go out and, and buy, because it's a fantastic book. Um, so that's the subject of your first book. How do you understand the significance of the divine image? Uh, you, you, you talked about this in your lecture last night, mm-hmm. by the way. we had a For, for those of you who are listening, uh, Richard gave a lecture last night at the University of Gloucestershire. Um, that, that picked up on the divine image at, at the beginning of it. So I wonder if you could just talk about the, how you understand the meaning and significance of the divine image, at least back in your Liberating Image book. Can I go beyond that? Yes. Uh, okay. can, yeah, because I actually want to see how your perspective okay. then shifted. Then, then I'd start with that. Then. <clears throat> yeah. so, so it became clear to me in reading scripture that the few places where the Imago Dei is mentioned, humans made in God's image, are associated with rule or dominion, verbs about subdue, rule, dominion, that kind of stuff. Psalm, one, Psalm 8, Genesis 1. So I got to understand that the image has to do with the exercise of power and agency in the world. And God, as the ruler of creation, who exercises agency in creation, is meant to be reflected in human agency in the world. And so that's been the core of how I understand the image. And that was called by some certain scholars like von Rad and others a functional interpretation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's an act, act, action theory interpretation. Yeah. And some people take the royal metaphor of rule to mean that humans dominate and humans are mm-hmm. suppress the world and you get a critique by certain mm-hmm. scholars who I won't name, who are good friends of mine, who yeah. think this is a, a, an oppressive kind of idea. Yeah, but so <laughs> it seems to me though that in, in the ancient world, the royal metaphor is simply a way to, to, to apply that to all human beings is a critique of the elitism of the king as the image of God in the ancient mm-hmm. Near East. Say all humans equally share power right. and the, the, the communal sharing of power to engage the world and transform it is the image of God. And that's mm. basically what the liberating image was about. Mm. But, so, so, you, yeah. so you, you took a predominantly functional reading of the, what it means to bear the divine image yes. in the liberating image. Okay. And just to be clear though, um, so I, I, I build in that book on 
other scholars who have said there are three dominant interpretations of the image. Mm -hmm. a, a substantialistic, that's mm -hmm. a term from Aristotle basically, mm -hmm. substance ontology. Mm -hmm. But the idea is a metaphysical idea that we are like God in our being. Uh -huh. Often rationality is what is so, pointed yeah, to. Okay. Uh, and then, then there is what's called a relational view, which is associated with Karl Barth, yeah. and um, then the functional view. Yeah, I so, actually the, think so, so the relational view is that we are made with an orientation toward God? Is that we're, we, are ma we are made for relationship. So okay. the male-female relationship models mm. the intra-divine mm. relationship of the Trinity and also how God relates to us. So everything is relational. Okay. And, and so I have a section in, in uh, my latest book where I say everything is relationship. I'm related yeah. to this microphone I'm talking to. I'm related yeah. to you, to the germs in my body, to, 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 to Brexit. Why so did, relationship why did you, is too broad, right? Why did you jump right from me to the germs in your body? <laughs> well, I think <laughs> is that intentional? Well, I actually love the germs in my body. My okay. biome is important to my life. Okay, yeah. I so, see that. so the point though is that a functional um, approach is also an ontology. It's a way of understanding how we are or being. And it's also a kind of relationship, but it specifies the relationships. That we are agents who are also interdependent. Yeah. To me, that's yeah. what the image is about. Yeah. Now, I, I've gone beyond that because I've taken a few comments in chapter 2 of the Liberating Image mm. that suggest that the image is also priestly and okay. sacramental. Because the world is God's temple and we are the icon or image in the temple meant to manifest the presence of God. There wasn't much about it in the liberating image, but now yeah. that is the entree to how I speak about the subject. Yeah. yeah. So, so the, the sacramental view um, sees human beings as the image. Of, is that apart from anything we do, per se? Or it just we are the divine image and... You know, the, the, it's it's not about activity, or is it still involving a, a functional understanding? So the distinction between being and doing is a philosophical distinction that's bogus. Yeah. You so can't be without ontology. doing anything. Okay. You can't be without doing anything. Yeah. And when you do things, you are being. Yeah. So I, I I don't believe that's a distinction. Yeah. <laughs> but the point, that I guess, you could look at the image as the gift of who we are. So we receive that from God, apart from what we do. But of course, we're going to do stuff. Yeah. And it's also then the call to live a certain way in response to that gift. Mm. And I've emphasized the calling because that's what I think the Bible does. But you also have to emphasize the gift. Mm -hmm. Because even those with deficient mental capacities or acting abilities and physical are also in the image. Yeah. But that's the gift side of it. Yeah, yeah. That, that's actually... That was what was behind my question okay, about got it. doing. Got it, yeah. Was the question... Because that's often raised in, in yeah. discussions about the image. Is what about those with severe um, mental disabilities, right. or um, someone who's uh, you know has dementia, or uh, an unborn baby? So you know, all all those individuals cannot necessarily act in a particular way right. that might relate to uh, what we typically associate yes. with them. Um, At least in terms of conscious agency, but they're always right. acting. Yeah, yeah. There, there's, there's there's function going sure. on all the time. Yeah. yeah, that's good. I guess I'd say that. Because I've addressed the notion of the image to the church and to those who need to hear there is a calling, an ethical dimension to the image, mm. I focused on that. Yeah. But if I was dealing primarily with a different audience, I yeah. might address the gift side more. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah that's good. Cause the, so the divine image is a gift apart from particular actions, yes. although we yes. are always acting simply by being. Yeah, <laughs> that's, okay. right. that's right. Yeah. And, and then I'd, I'd just be curious to get your take, because... Uh, you know, when, I, when I've assigned papers on the divine image in Genesis, uh, students always pick up on the let us yes. mm -hmm. make humankind in our image. 
I'm not as concerned about who the us are, but I'm, I am more interested in in what it means then to be made in the image of an us. Yes, at least yeah. at first yeah. in that first statement. Yeah. So if you could unpack that a little bit. So, so I, you know, Christian theology has tried to say that God is triune, God is plural, mm-hmm. and that's emphasized in the us. And that may be an implication we could go to, mm-hmm. but in the original context, God is addressing the angelic host. But God in the Old Testament mm-hmm. is not simply solitary. God always works in the context of the angelic host, the divine counsel. And so many pictures throughout scripture portray God among others who are in heaven with God, who are sent for particular tasks. Mm-hmm. So the, 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 the interesting nuance is God says, let us mm-hmm. create, let us make humanity in our image. Uh, it, it, says, it then says that God made humanity, right? but it uses God as Elohim, which is a plural noun. Yeah. And sometimes Elohim includes the angelic host in certain texts. Yeah. And in Psalm 8, where it says, that we've been given dominion, um, we're just a little bit lower than Elohim. You know, that could mean God or the heavenly host, or both. Yeah. So there is a, the notion that God is not simply a solitary Cartesian individual in the Bible. There's something <laughs> true. God is in relationship even with the heavenly host, but also now with the created order. Yeah. So, so would you say then that by bringing the heavenly host into the picture, God is saying that humans are kind of functioning like the host functions, but yet on earth? That's exactly right, what I think, yes. So carrying, so, and then what would that involve? Like, um, how does that apply to my daily life? (laughs) Well, it it means that, and so I'm going to connect now this image of God stuff, which may seem abstract to some people, to what we call about, you know, a life of holiness or sanctification. Mm -hmm. So to be a Christian means that you... You want to conform your life to God's purposes. You want the Spirit to so fill you that the fruit of the Spirit is manifest in your life. So you are a representative of God and God's purposes in all you do. If that becomes your identity, then your actions will start to flow from that. And it seems to me that's the analogy with the heavenly host. They are the representatives of God, sent out as emissaries to do God's work in the world. We do the same. But not as some kind of purely extrinsic function, yeah. but it, the, f- the function flows from our identity. Because yeah. this is who we are, this is how we live. Yeah. Okay, let's move to talk about your book, uh, New Heaven and a New Earth, Reclaiming Biblical Eschatology. Um, what are the key points in your book? Uh, and, and this came out, and I think it's a good entry point, uh, came out in your lecture last night, is the idea that creation is good, but not perfect. And that might be a little disappointing for some people, at least, uh, and you're referring to even the original creation. Um, so what do you mean by that? Why is that an important thing to say? Yes. Perfection in the Western philosophical tradition and the theological tradition has meant something is as good as it can possibly get and it can't be improved on. But it seems to me that the very fact that God gave humans dominion over the world and called on us to subdue the earth, it means that we must engage the earth with our agency to transform it, to improve it. And so the tending of the garden in Genesis 2 is a matter of transformation. And this does lead in Genesis 4 to a cultural development as which happens when you tend the garden. And so there is a transformation from the garden of Eden at the beginning of the biblical story to the new Jerusalem at the end, which is a garden city. Elements of the garden of Eden are intertwined into the the, 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 the cultural development of the world. So God always intended the world to be developed, to be improved. Um, the question, of course, is have we really improved it or have we destroyed it? And I think, you know, it's, it's we've both improved it and destroyed it. Yeah, so I think then that, t- that 
brings in the question of human sin. And, you know, one way of looking at it is that God had a plan, sin totally derailed it, and now God is trying to get things back to where they were prior to sin. Help correct that picture. Yes. So that's a picture I used to have, but as I've read scripture and thought theologically about it, I now come to something closer to what Irenaeus of Lyon had. And Irenaeus um, has this notion, the metaphor is that when the human race was begun in Adam, we were like a young child, an infant, and we were growing up into maturity, but the child gets a crippling disease and becomes deformed. That's what sin is. So, but the, but the, the child has grown to an adult who's deformed. And what redemption is, is not to return us to a childish state, but to now unbend the deformity while we're still mature. So the, 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 the trajectory towards maturity is not reversed, but only the crippling effects of sin are reversed. Mm. So help, help me see that in, within the Old Testament, because another, maybe another version of that story is that human sin corrupted the world. God chose Abraham to, to be his agent to fix the world, but he totally failed, Israel totally failed, everything, you know, the Old Testament is just a story of failure until Jesus, you know, is it... Help, help me with that picture as well. Yeah, that's right. And then after Jesus, the church totally fails too. Yeah. <laughs> so the point, the, the point is there is well, always yeah, a complexity, right? So <laughs> there is great progression and innovation throughout the Old Testament with failure. It's a, both are there. And the condescension of God, God's love is such that God will work with our corrupt innovations. So the people want a king like the nations. God didn't originally want a king. God said, all right, let's have a king. Samuel couldn't handle it, but yeah. God said, it's fine. It's like, the, you know, the, the, your kid comes to you and says, can I borrow the car tonight? Mm. And you say, well, I don't know. I didn't think you were ready for it. I, yeah. I really want the car. Well, if I'm going to allow this child to develop, maybe I'll give him the keys, and, but, set, but I'll give the Torah for the king. Yeah. So if you have a car, you can't do this. No drunk, drunk driving. No, no, don't pack it with other kids. You know, pay <laughs> attention to the road. No night driving. That's what the yeah. Torah for the king yeah. is. So yeah. God condescends. Same thing with the temple. Um, David wants to build a temple. God says, I don't need a temple. Never lived in a temple. I've always moved around in tabernacles. I really want to build a temple. All right. One of your sons will build it for me, but not right now. And God uses yeah. that. Mm. So God can condescend to address whatever we do, corrupt mm. as it may be, and bring good out of it. And, and that's the case also mm. with the church. There's mm. no difference to me between the Old and New Testaments on this point. So, um, yeah, I, I really like that image of God, you know, essentially folding human um, desires into his plan. The d desires might have been mixed or corrupt, you know, wanting a king like the nations. Then God folds it into his plan. It's not just that he, uh, he, he says, okay, I'll work with it, but he actually makes it into like better than it possibly could have become yes. otherwise. Yeah. And so I think the city, maybe the city of Jerusalem could, other, could be an example as well, where maybe that, that kind of impulse toward uh, concentrating power in one region is not, not the best of desires, right. but then God works with that, and you have eventually the image of a new Jerusalem. Yes. It's interesting that, you know, when David captures Jebus, which becomes Jerusalem, mm -hmm. um, he takes one of the taunts the Jebusites use and says himself, you know, the blind or lame will never enter here, mm -hmm. which of course is actually central to how Matthew conceives the son of David, mm -hmm. because the first thing that happens when Jesus goes to the temple is the blind and lame come to him and ask for healing. Oh, yeah. What's interesting is a reversal of that. So yeah. this, this, the, the city of Jerusalem has all kind of negative connotations. Um, Jeremiah 5.1 
go through the streets of Jerusalem, find even one righteous person. And I'll forgive the city. <laughs> he could find one. <laughs> and Jeremiah was trying to plead, well, those who are the poor, maybe the rich and the learned, are, are, no, none of them are righteous either. But God in Isaiah 65 says, I'm going to delight in Jerusalem and take joy in my people when the redemption happens. And that so that even the urban corruption of the world can be redeemed. So don't think we're going back to nature. Cities and cultures are going to be redeemed, but they're going to be environmentally friendly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we don't need to go off the grid to be biblical. We don't have to. No, no, okay. no. So let's talk about heaven, which is another big part of... Um, you had to bring that up, did you? Yeah, yeah. well, okay. So uh, I, think, I think a lot of people are probably now familiar with the idea that our... Um, the, the Bible doesn't necessarily say that our ultimate destiny is, is heaven. Um, could you just talk about the significance of heaven in the Bible and how it relates to our, our ultimate return to a new heaven and a new earth? Yeah, that's a big topic. Yeah. Um, the, the core thing to say first is that in the Bible, the, the expectation of hope Mm-hmm. of redemption is that God will raise us from the dead, redeem bodies, mm-hmm. and, and put us in a new world, mm-hmm. a redeemed world, where it's cleansed of evil, where righteousness is at home, as Second mm-hmm. Peter 3 says. Mm-hmm. Now, heaven functions in the Bible as basically all, all the world that's not the earth. So it's, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's, a, it's language, the heavens is the language for the, the extra earthly world. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. It, you know, they thought, up there. So, so, you know, Jesus ascended into heaven because heaven was up. But, you know, if we have our notion of the universe, where did Jesus go? Up past Jupiter? Like, which direction did he go? (laughs) So it only works. It it becomes a metaphor. That's what's important. It's Mm. part of the created world that we don't have access to. It becomes a metaphor for transcendence. And that's God's realm. And the metaphor throughout the Bible is God comes from heaven. So in the Psalms, the psalmist prays, I'm going down into the pit, my enemies have surrounded me, my cry went up to the Lord to his heavenly temple. He heard from heaven and he came down and pulled me up from the miry clay. God comes to us, Mm -hmm. comes down in judgment, God comes down in in Mm -hmm. salvation. Mm -hmm. So the direction of salvation is that God brings God's own realm, the heavenly realm, to earth, to transform earth, the environment to save us from our sins. So, so then heaven is a way of saying that, um, and, and you talk about this in the book, I think, that heaven is a way of talking about the fact that God's rule is not corrupted by the kind of rule we have here on earth. So he's outside the system, so to speak. Okay, yeah, and and yeah. on the basis of that, he's able to intervene in our corrupt systems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, that's a point made by Walter Brueggemann about the Exodus. But you can't appeal to Pharaoh. He just increases the brick quota. Yeah. But you can appeal to Yahweh, who comes down from heaven to bring right. deliverance. Yes. Right. Um, so then... Uh, one of the things you said last night I thought was interesting is that uh, heaven in the Bible is physical and visible, right? So how does that fit with uh, maybe other texts in the Bible that talk about God being invisible and, uh, yeah. th- you know, things invisible and things visible? You know, it seems seems to be, right. or at least there seems to develop an idea that there's an unseen dimension. So this is one of the, the areas where the Bible is very complex and there are multiple mm-hmm. points of view. And okay. I am I'm working on a, I'm trying to figure out how to write an article on this. Okay. Because maybe you, we can work it out now. Because you get the idea. I don't think we're gonna work it out here. <laughs> you get the idea um, in, in many texts that no one can see God and live. Well, that, that that assumes you can see God. 
Mm-hmm. So that's interesting because yeah. other texts say no one has ever seen God, John, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but then there's all these people in the Old Testament said, I saw God and I didn't die. Yeah. Like, what's going on there? <laughs> so um, the Israelites go, the, the elders go up with Moses to Mount Sinai and they saw God sitting on a throne on a sapphire surface. That's the heavens, that's the rakia, the firmament, as it was conceived in Mesopotamian religion. The, the, the gods sit on a blue surface, that's heaven. They yeah. sit on there. So they saw God. And um, Ezekiel saw something. He tried to qualify it. Yeah. So there's something that looked like the appearance of the glory of the Lord and something like a son of man in the midst of it. So I saw something. Yeah. So there's all, I, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And, yeah. He yeah. saw an Apache helicopter. I know that. Yeah. <laughs> so, so the question of whether God is visible or invisible is really an, a non-issue for me because you get both perspectives in the Bible. And what that means is that God is beyond clear conceptuality. But God can be God can be visible, God can appear, God can even be tangible, but God is not essentially that. God is beyond the created order. And that doesn't mean God is immaterial. That, that is a platonic idea. It just means that God is not c- captured in any conceptuality we have, yeah. but God is incarnate, not just in Christ, not just that God's throne is in heaven. God is incarnate in our complex language too. So mm. language does speak really about God, mm. but no one way of speaking captures mm. everything. Mm. Uh, yeah. My master thesis was on religious language. I was struggling yeah. with this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that's helpful. And, and I, th- I think it also, I mean, the way we talk about God being visible and invisible would also then apply to, to the uh, post-resurrection Jesus, who, for Orthodox Christians, um, b- we believe that he's eternally human. And so what is that eternally human body like? Well, it's... it's uh, I don't know, where is it? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> you know, it's, exactly. It's where that is kind it? of, you get into yeah. those sorts of... And, and um, they might have thought, well, it's up there, but yeah. we're not sure what that means, you know, in Alpha yeah. Centauri maybe, or Beetlejuice, I don't know, yeah. where, where he's hanging out right now. <laughs> um, so the, the, the idea that, um, going back to heaven for a moment, the idea that we don't necessarily go to heaven when we die, and it, or at least as our ultimate destiny, um, that's usually coupled with the idea that you can't, you can't neatly separate soul and body, um, at least in terms of an eternal soul that's, that right. can live on apart from the body. Um, is that correct? Is it, yeah, so, is that so, so apart from those few texts that maybe hint at an intermediate state, and mm-hmm. my argument is that none of them really clearly teach that, though yeah. clearly um, our friend last night disagreed with me on that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, so th- when, apart from that, it doesn't make sense of the biblical anthropology mm. because in Plato you have soul is immaterial rational part of the human being body is the, the, the physical part at death they separate and the soul was always eternal and will always continue to be eternal yeah. Aristotle believed the soul is the form of the body so the, the soul disintegrates when the body disintegrates Christians didn't like that they went to Plato but in the Bible what we translate as the word soul in Hebrew is nefesh, which means basically organism. Mm. So a nefesh chaya is a living organism. Mm. And a, in, in numbers, we are told, don't touch a dead nefesh, a dead soul. It's a corpse, mm-hmm. an organism with no life left in it. Yeah. So if you can use the word that way, it can't mean what Plato meant by it. And even in the New Testament, I have a blog called Soul in Paul, not what you thought it meant, mm-hmm. which I deconstruct the notion that Paul believes in an eternal soul. He, mm. he actually has no positive use of the word soul in the Bible. Mm. It's all negative. Mm. It's the soulish man, the natural man, is the man who is mortal, who is dying, mm. to be replaced by the resurrection body, which is a spiritual, pneumatic body. Yeah. What would you say is, um, you know, as, as you've worked through this book um, and now uh, lectured on it in various places, what, what's the... 
most challenging text for your thesis? Or is it, or is it kind of a complex of texts that depend on the perspective you come yeah. from to them? So, uh, what I did in the lecture last night yeah. is kind of what I do in the first part of the book. Mm. And I want to show the coherence of how it fits together, that from creation to eschaton, God loves this world, mm -hmm. wants to, the flourishing of the world, yeah. and so has been committed to the redemption of the world despite its corruption, despite our sin. Okay, fine. Then you get to a certain point in the book. What about all these other passages? Because one of the um, pedagogical techniques I used, beginning when I was 20, when I first had that dawning awareness, yeah. is I led a Bible study at my church in which I said, after the first class, I would like anybody to find contradictory passages in the Bible and bring them next week. We'll look at them. And if you find a passage that says, humans, when they are redeemed, will live in heaven forever, I'll give you $20. And I've been doing that for 40 years now, and nobody's ever found a passage <laughs> that was incontrovertibly saying that. Yeah, yeah. And so, but I do address in two full chapters in the book mm -hmm. all the, the passages that I've ever heard, and many I've never heard brought up, that I yeah. think could be viewed as contradictory, and how do we sort them out, given this vision? And it's difficult in some cases, but I, I saw a pattern emerge. And the pattern is that, um, many biblical texts suggest in the New Testament mm -hmm. that salvation is being prepared for us in heaven. Mm -hmm. So heaven has this, this sense that we do not make our own salvation, God is doing it for us even now. And our life is hid with Christ in God. Right now we are exalted in the heavenlies, says mm -hmm. Ephesians. That means we're not dominated by the corrupt world. There is a source of our identity. It's God in heaven mm -hmm. that is different from where we are now. And at the last day, that heavenly identity will be fully revealed and we will become like who Christ is when we see him face to face. Yeah. So, so I encourage listeners who um, are thinking of all kinds of passages and saying, well, what about, you know, I go to prepare a place for you and all these kinds of things to read Richard's book and uh, where he addresses those texts. One of the questions that we always ask on the podcast is, what is one idea in biblical studies that you think needs to die? Oh, one, only one. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you have more that you need to kill off, feel uh, free. Well, that's a good question. I don't actually always be think about that question. What I think about is what idea in the church needs to die. Maybe I think about that okay, more. Okay, well, you can go there. <laughs> well, in general, I think that what needs to die in the church is that our ordinary life in the world is carried on with no direction from God. Mm -hmm. that, 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 that our spiritual life, some segment of our life, our worship, our, our prayer and so forth, that's our spirituality. And I want to say that being human is spirituality. And so I don't believe in anything called uh, spiritual formation. That is a narrow-minded thing. I believe in formative spirituality, that life is spirituality because the Spirit of God must manifest itself through all of our activities in everything we do. Who we are should affect everything we do, our consumer choices, our ecological stances, our family um, you know, engagement, everything. The way we also now think about scripture. So maybe this leads to the question of what in biblical studies needs to die. And I think it's the notion that if you are grounded in the church and you have a vision for the healing of the world through the people of God, that somehow that corrupts your authentic biblical studies. Yeah. I think that's just BS and that should really die. Yeah, yeah. That's BS about biblical studies. There you go. All right. Um, now, one last thing before you we... You uh, edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's important. 
one, one last thing. Um, uh, this is this is the home stretch here in the interview, and one of the things we like to do is called a speed round, and and this is where you have a maximum of thirty seconds uh, for these questions, and I'm just going to run through them. <laughs> okay. Does that sound good? At, at, uh, Such first a thing in the morning, quick answer kind of thing. Yeah, yeah we yeah. we want quick answers, no nuance. All right. <clears throat> okay. Mm-hmm. What's the most important book in biblical scholarship in the last fifty years? For me, um, The Prophetic Imagination by Walter Brueggemann. What's the best book you've read recently? Uh, the Old Testament is Dying by Brent Strong. Okay, we've already touched on the intermediate state, so that was one of my other, other, other questions. What is Sheol? Sheol is just the realm of the dead. That's where you go as you wait for resurrection or judgment. Okay. So, what is hell? Well, if the meek will inherit the earth, hell is cosmic disinheritance. Now, one of the um, uh, primary ideas in your book is that when we die, we're dead, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you make of Elijah being uh, taken off in the fiery chariot? Is, he, is that a way of saying he's dead? No, what? He, well, he did not die. He went bodily to the New Jerusalem. Mm. And that's straight where, there, yeah, straight shortcut. There. So he didn't experience any temporal interval, interval as we do. Yeah, so he didn't have to go through death. Yeah. I think that's what it means. Interesting. Okay. How about Enoch? Walked same, with God and I was no more. Thing. I think those are the two examples of that, yeah. Okay, excellent. Um, you've done some work on creation and science. Uh, when do, in the evolution of Homo sapiens, when, when do they uh, get the divine image? We have no idea, but we can speculate that around the time of what anthropologists call the Great Leap Forward, which is more than, less than half the distance between us and when Homo sapiens evolved, that something happened. And maybe that was the Imago Dei. Okay, excellent. Hey, you did really well with the speed round. That's it. Uh, Richard, I want to just say thank you so much for taking the time this morning. I know you've been on a busy tour of the UK, and I encourage people to um, check out Richard's blog, which is... um, Creation to Eschaton. Creation to Eschaton. Just Google it. And also to look at his his book, A New Heaven and a New Earth, which we'll have a link to on our site, onscript.study. Thank you so much, Richard. My pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to On Script, conversations on current biblical scholarship. Until next time, visit us at our site, onscript.study.com.